Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again today. This is the third episode of Heavier Than I Look, which is a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kia Russo, and I am your host. So we are actually celebrating our second win in the ACC after yesterday. Um, We had our second football game yesterday, which was awesome. We had great, great weather. And it shows that the Fighting Irish are still fighting. So now let's jump into this podcast. So today we're going to be talking about, and this is something we had kind of covered a little bit in in the past two episodes, is trauma and triggers. And I had talked about in last episode a couple of my own triggers that I have dealt with during recovery. So we're going to jump into that a little bit more um, in addition to talking about how trauma affects those with eating disorders and how trauma can manifest itself within triggers. Um And as we've talked about before, this podcast is, you know, not going to shy away from these kind of difficult conversations with disordered eating and body dysmorphia um, because it wants to aim to empower survivors, to educate, to educate everyone listening, to foster conversation about a lot of these things in in hopes to, you know, destigmatize the disorder. Um, And... In the last week, actually, we've had some exciting developments in the podcast world. So Heavier Than I Look is now accessible on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. So that is super duper duper exciting. And I um, am so excited to have this podcast become a little bit more accessible for those who want to listen. So if you miss the live broadcast, you, you know have those options to listen to. And then the first two episodes are actually already uploaded and accessible um, if you care to return to those at any point. And each new episode will be uploaded to these uploaded to these services by the end of each Sunday. So if you miss the live broadcast from 9 to 10, you can check out these services, Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts um, at any point after Sunday. And... I would just like to say, you know, please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, those who you feel could specifically benefit. I've already had a lot of people in the last week come up to me asking to share it with others. And that's super duper, duper helpful. And and I really appreciate everyone's support in the last week. Um, Additionally, some other exciting developments with Heavier Than I Look. HTIL also has its very own Instagram and Twitter accounts. So if you would like to learn more, interact with the podcast further, please feel free to follow on both platforms. It's at Heavier Than I Look. And these platforms will kind of offer a more interactive space for the eating disorder community or interested listeners. And the account's DMs are also always open if you want to send a piece of encouragement or if you're interested in sharing your own story um, or you're interested in being featured on the show. So please do not hesitate to reach out. We would love, love to hear from you guys. So obviously, as I had talked about, we are continuing in our discussion of disordered eating and body dysmorphia this week with a specific focus on triggers and trauma. And before we jump in, I just would like to dedicate this episode to all those in the past week who have reached out and who have expressed their support for last week's episode of my story. It was a little bit scary to come, you know, on a microphone and come on a podcast and share six years of pretty personal and vulnerable moments in my life. But um, it 
was incredible. The feedback that I received from everyone and the reception that I received from everyone, whether it was family, whether it was friends, um, it was really, really reassuring to have that response. So just this episode is dedicated to all those who did reach out in the past week. Um, I really, really, really appreciate it. And although, you know, my eating disorder is, you know, perhaps only a small part of your world, your encouragement has really, truly made all the difference in mine. So thank you. Um, So now let's jump in. So again, one of the things that we discussed last week in my own testimony of disordered eating and body dysmorphic thought was the idea of triggers. These triggers generally elicit an emotional response an emotional response, which can result in a relapse. So triggers are not specific to eating disorders as they can be seen in a wide variety of psychiatric disorders, including uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And an interesting thing in doing research for this episode, an interesting thing that I learned is when partial or subclinical forms of PTSD are included in the lifetime PTSD rates, it is found that well over half of individuals with bulimic symptoms, which is a type of eating disorder, they have also suffered from PTSD. So automatically we can see that PTSD, trauma, triggers, and eating disorders are intertwined. And trauma is not necessarily associated with the greater severity of eating disorders, yet it is associated with greater comorbidity which is the simultaneous presence of two chronic diseases or conditions in a patient. So one of the things that we'll be talking about a lot in this episode is co-occurring mental disorders or um, comorbidity. And, you know, these are kind of scientific terms that I have done a lot of research on in the past week or so. Um, And we're not going to like jump into like the nitty gritty of everything Obviously, I'm not qualified to talk about that stuff, but it is important to kind of have these terms and have these ideas in the back of our mind when we talk about trauma, because it is a very complex, um, you know, kind of deep rooted issue. And this episode is really only going to scratch the surface. But so when we talk about trauma, we can talk about how trauma may show itself in a person who has dealt with a traumatic experience or a person who has dealt with some kind of disordered eating. And it often results in this kind of emotional dysregulation or lack of control of your emotions. So you can be angry, you can be anxious, you can be sad, you can harbor shame. Any of these kinds of emotions and a lot more are indicators of trauma. And this is not just like everyday anger or sadness or anxiety, but this is kind of more deep-rooted, profound experiences of all those. And trauma can also show itself in more physical adverse effects. So in addition to the emotional dysregulation, you can have sleep disturbances, you can have gastrointestinal disturbances, cardiovascular, neurological, substance use. So these are just, you know, kind of some of the physical adverse effects that you can feel when you're dealing with trauma. And specifically with patients who have dealt with eating disorders, they can be more vulnerable to stress stress consequences, so they can be more susceptible to dealing with consequences of stress, including the perception of of a threat 
or hostile intent from others. They can have high levels of anxiety sensitivity, which are characterized by a fear of loss of control. And loss of control is something that we'll talk about pretty much every single episode as it relates to eating disorders. And as we had talked about last episode, food is not exactly central to eating disorders. It's that fear of loss of control. It's that emotional dysregulation that in a lot of ways fuels this uh, disordered eating and disordered behavior and thought. Um, Eating disorder patients may also have exaggerated inhibition, which is kind of like this self-restraint and inability to act in a relaxed manner, or they can have the anticipatory anxiety, which is tension over an expected negative outcome. So as you can see, patients with eating disorders may, you know, be more susceptible and may be predisposed to specific experiences of stress. And as you can see, already at this point, trauma and eating disorders are entangled. I have characterized them in my research. I Learning how to characterize trauma and eating disorders um, in terms of like their chronological space. So for example, trauma can exist as a risk factor in developing an eating disorder. Trauma can also occur during the suffering of one with an eating disorder. And finally, trauma also like traverses the the junction between suffering and recovery. And this is because of this is because of triggers. So we talk about trauma before an eating disorder, during an eating disorder, and while in recovery. So talking about trauma before an eating disorder. And it's it's uh, ability to act as a risk factor in developing an eating disorder. So we had talked about a number of risk factors in the first episode and some of those that kind of deal with traumatic experiences. Number one, teasing and bullying because of one's weight or appearance. You have acculturation, which is trauma associated with rapid rapid westernization. So a lot of foreign cultures who are exposed to this Western ideal of thinness, of beauty, um, and then have to undergo rapid westernization. They may face trauma in that ideal and develop an eating disorder. You can also have generational trauma, Um, And these individuals kind of face health consequences, which include anxiety, psychic numbing, poor effect tolerance, unresolved grief, which are all kind of catalysts for when to develop an eating disorder. You can, this is not, uh, this is not something that we talked about last episode, but it definitely deserves its time is that of sexual, physical, or emotional abuse. And this is one of the most profound risk factors in eating disorders because Disordered eating can present itself as an effective emotional regulation tactic in this setting, yet generally will lead to increased emotional dysregulation. And um, eating disorders in this way can be seen as a coping mechanism for those who have faced trauma. Obviously, it's not a a healthy or proper coping mechanism and often result in more trauma. Um, But such behaviors appear to mitigate like the hyperarousal or the anxiety that is associated with trauma or can even be an attempt to numb or avoid the traumatic experiences or reoccurrences of those traumatic experiences. As you can see, trauma existing as a risk factor in developing an eating disorder can be very problematic. Um, It can, you know, exist in a, a myriad of different ways. Like we said, teasing and bullying, acculturation, generational trauma, sexual, physical, or emotional abuse. Um, And 
the interaction between trauma and eating disorders can become even more problematic because eating disorders are seen as this, you know, kind of protective measure against that fear of loss of control, against that emotional dysregulation, against the traumatic experience. But in fact, eating disorders only perpetuate that traumatic experience and have their own triggers that accompany them. And therefore, it can be that much more destructive for the individual. And when dealing with an eating disorder, as we talked about, um, or as we talked about with disordered eating, it's a behavior that appears to like mitigate this hyperarousal arousal or anxiety or to numb or avoid the traumatic experiences. But this can actually result in what's known as disassociative amnesia, which is the forgetting of parts or all of the traumatic events. So when we talk about using disordered eating to numb or avoid the traumatic experiences, it can often be aggravated to a point of disassociated disassociative amnesia, which clearly is very problematic for those with eating disorders. And then finally, when we talk about disordered eating as a like coping mechanism for those who have dealt with trauma, disordered eating is a reinforcing behavior, which makes it difficult for those in recovery to break the cyclical pattern of thought, of eating, of control. Because disordered eating is reinforcing. The more you do it, the more you build up these reward pathways and these thoughts and these approaches about food and therefore the more those pathways strengthen and the more more those neurological links strengthen and that makes it that much harder to break those and to redirect those within recovery. Trauma also occurs during the suffering of one with an eating disorder. And this is something that I've felt firsthand in terms of triggers. This is kind of when triggers come into play. And these are often, you know, pretty simple, everyday objects, experiences, um, words, phrases, any kind of language. Yet because of the association in the sufferer's mind, these experiences, these stimuli can become incredibly disturbing for that individual. These triggers often elicit kind of intrusive thoughts, which are correlated with a strong emotional or behavioral reaction as if the trauma was reoccurring. So triggers in essence signal to the individual that the trauma is reoccurring and therefore can elicit that really profound, intrusive, disorienting, um, emotional thought or behavioral thought. And those with eating disorders, when they are triggered, they kind of have this compulsive urge. I I should say we have this compulsive urge to act on those disordered thoughts and feelings. And the disordered eating and negative thoughts associated are a result of the trigger. So that is why triggers and reoccurrence of trauma can prompt a relapse in eating disorders. And when we talk about the simple kind of experiences and and language that can exist as triggers in an eating disorder world, these things are not 
really known to the public um, and to those who have not dealt with eating disorders. These things are are rather complex and kind of <laughs> only appear to those who have dealt with eating disorders or those who are clinicians and like helping eating disorder survivors in their recovery. And this is also something that this podcast is kind of aimed at doing is at, like we said before, to stigmatize the disorder, but also make the general public aware of the different triggers that are associated with disordered eating that exist in our culture and can aggravate thoughts of disordered eating and can prompt relapses for survivors. So it's important to talk about these things kind of in an open manner to have those become more knowledgeable to everyone, whether struggling with eating disorders or not. And triggers, when we talk about the compulsive urge to act on disordered thoughts and behaviors, that is a result of, of triggers. There's this um, psychological term called flooding, which refers to the intrusive thoughts and memories coming rapidly, which are very disruptive and disorienting for those who have who have dealt with eating disorders. And this is often when those relapses occur because this idea of flooding is this rapid inflow of thought that is often disordered and often problematic. And the eating disorder survivor has a difficult time differentiating between thoughts that are healthy, thoughts that speak truth to yourself, and thoughts that are not. Um, which is why trauma treatment is incredibly important before one is to fully, fully recover from an eating disorder. With this episode... As I said before, this is kind of a more shallow understanding of trauma and triggers as they relate to eating disorders. But it's also important to know that all of this research and all of this evidence is kind of based on just preliminary studies of trauma, eating disorders, triggers, because trigger formation and the experience of trauma, there's not a ton of research on it, especially as it relates to eating disorders. Um, because eating disorders in general don't have a ton of research on it. But this specific avenue within eating disorders and the experiences they pose to survivors is that of of trauma and that of triggers. And, And this specifically doesn't have a ton of research. In fact, trigger formation is currently not really known how that happens. Yet some you know, researchers believe that our brains store memories differently when dealing with a traumatic event versus a non-traumatic event. So as new research comes out and as these things are kind of uncovered and discovered, you know, I definitely will update you guys on that research. But it's just important to note that a lot of uh, what I will mention today is not exhaustive, is not in-depth because of the lack of research. Um, But what we do know on triggers obviously is very, very helpful in confronting recovery and confronting a lot of these things so that we can return to normalcy. And triggers for for eating disorders are those that are becoming more and more um, studied and researched. 
and known, which is great because the recovery of eating disorders will become more and more accurate and um, more intensive and more helpful and beneficial for those who have struggled if this research is shown to help and if this research kind of expands in breadth and expands in width. So those those things are coming <laughs> eventually. Um, but for right now, what we know about triggers is they can be internalized or externalized. Internal, we talked about that emotional, emotionally relevant memory. External can be a certain location, a food. There's this phrase in eating in the eating disorder community called fear foods. Um, and that's really specific pertaining to eating disorder survivors. It can also be a noise, a smell, temperature, visual scene. So as you can see, a lot of the external triggers are those that involve like the sensory experiences versus internal triggers are those often that are an emotionally relevant memory. And one thing I'd mentioned last week is confronting triggers is probably one of the hardest parts of recovery and eating disorders because triggers in essence are that survivor's deepest wounds, right? It's that idea that if triggers are seen and visible to others, they will reveal the most vulnerable aspects of our lives. And they're the ultimate kind of most divisive signification of disordered thoughts. Triggers are, are not a choice, right? But they determine involuntarily our reaction and our response because of the neurological patterns that we have established in our brain. And in recovery, as I said, one of the hardest things, but also one of the most important and crucial aspects of recovery is confronting those triggers, is identifying them. Because traumas that generate shame and generate this kind of silence around eating disorders will lead survivors to isolate themselves, believing the experience to have damaged them in an irreversible way, believing that experience to be the deepest wounds, the most vulnerable parts of themselves that shouldn't be seen. Yet, these things are most critical to be seen because they are at the heart of disordered eating. Eating disorders and suffering from an eating disorder and recovering from an eating disorder does not have to be silent. And that is something that I'm hoping to push and push and push in this podcast. And I'm sure you guys will listen to me say it about a thousand times, but I truly, truly believe it's very important. And this is something I feel so important that it actually is the logo of, of Heavier Than I Look, HTIL. We have a, an individual in the back of the logo who is putting their um, index finger up to their mouth, kind of making that like shh uh, image. And that is, in effect, an eating disorder. Because an eating disorder tells you to be silent. It tells you to suffer in silence. It encourages that notion that there is something wrong with you that needs fixing and should not be seen by anyone or anything. Yet, eating disorders do not have to be silent. 
and the font of this podcast, Heavier Than I Look, hosted by Kira Rousseau, Eating Disorders Do Not Do Silent, and then in addition, the account handle for Instagram and Twitter exists above that image on the logo. And that's significant. That's important because that symbolizes that suffering and recovery in eating disorders do not have to be silent. This podcast exists above and confronts that silence as much as possible. This is something I felt firsthand. Last week, I shared my full story about disordered eating, and it was roughly, I think it was over an hour. And this was my confront to the silence that my eating disorder required and demanded. And the silence that my triggers had demanded for so long. And certain triggers for me, and this is not common for for everyone with eating disorders, but they can exist in other spaces as well, are number one, certain articles of clothing. As I talked about last week with the bathing suits that kind of like exposed my problem areas. And that was something that existed when I was eight years old and still exists today. Number two, running because it was solely viewed as a mechanism by which I lost weight during high school. Um, Most notably, the scale and my weight. And this is something we've talked about extensively, but my weight was a landmark of sorts for each version or stage of Kira. It was how I determined my self-worth, my value as a human. And a bathing suit and the scale were kind of entangled as triggers, right? So we had the bathing suit kind of being this externalized pressure and the scale being an internalized pressure both I felt with tremendous shame, yet the bathing suit was kind of this public pressure where every what I where I thought everyone could see my shame on display in my body. Um, weirdly enough, photos are also triggers for me. If you were to ask me to go back in my phone and look at pictures from the past like six years or so, I could name exactly how much I weighed in every single picture. And in recovery, without the objective measure of weight to determine my self-worth, subconsciously I noticed my attempting to define myself in this new body and in new ways. And new definitions that I've kind of been actively working against are number one, how well do I fit in my old clothes? So that's why clothes can kind of be a trigger for me because they exist during my different eras. So for example, if I can fit into a dress that I wore during freshman year of high school, what does that mean in terms of my recovery? You know, what, how can I define myself in this, in this new body and how can that also exist as a trigger? And then also if I don't (laughs) fit into those, those articles of clothing during high school, what does that mean in terms of my recovery? So these can be kind of destructive patterns of thought. And then also in terms of photos, what I look like now versus then. A a compulsive behavior during eating disorder suffering was comparing pictures of myself as a freshman versus during suffering versus when I was struggling with anorexia or when I was struggling with binge eating disorder, BD, and I kind of have these like back-to-back photos of old versus new to try and seek to define myself in this way, which is one of the things that you kind of actively have to work against in recovery and forming new 
patterns of thought and new self-definitions that don't necessarily have to do with your physical appearance. Um, and in this way, triggers traverse the junction between suffering and recovery. When you decide you want to recover, triggers don't necessarily up and disappear. They are ingrained, it feels like, in your being. And recovery requires the confrontation of these triggers. Because if not, they can elicit a severe emotional response and result in relapse. Reencountering an object, an experience, language associated with trauma can increase symptoms or encourage their reemergence. And this is where I say I'm in the trial and error part of recovery because triggers present themselves in my life every single day. And I have to fight them every single day. Trauma and triggers are not a one-time thing. It's repetitive. They exist in multiples. Longevity is attributed. These are things you have to confront every single day for a large part of recovery and also afterwards. So as you can see, there are kind of three different categories that trauma can exist within as it relates to eating disorders, before, during, and after. Before is risk factors, during when we talk about triggers and the experiences of trauma aggravated by disordered eating, and also after in that triggers are the bridge <laughs> between between suffering and recovery. And just because you're in recovery does not mean triggers go away. But with each eating disorder, trauma exists differently, right? And also with each person, trauma is felt differently. And for each eating disorder and for each person, these are kind of individualized cases of trauma. Interestingly enough, trauma is more common in bulimic eating disorders as compared to non-bulimic eating disorders. So as we talked about in episode one, bulimia nervosa is characterized by a cycle of binging and compensatory behaviors such as self-induced vomiting, misuse of laxatives, other kind of medication. And these compulsive behaviors are meant to undo the effects of binge eating yet often lead to digestive imbalances and can potentially be life-threatening. And trauma, specifically as it is a risk factor, is more common in bulimic eating disorders than non-bulimic eating disorders such as anorexia. So patients with bulimia actually show a higher occurrence of traumatic events than those with anorexia. And it's not exactly sure, they're not exactly sure why that might be. But as I said before, as research becomes more in-depth and becomes more extensive, hopefully we'll start to understand why and be able to address those things more accurately. And it's very rare that eating disorder patients are simply that, individuals with just eating disorders. As we talked about before, food is not always the 
main issue. It's just the external object that becomes vilified because of internal dissonance. And although the name would say otherwise, I would argue that eating is not central to eating disorders. Um, Disruptive or unsafe eating practices are a symptom of eating disorders, yet do not reveal the whole of the issue. And part of this discussion today with traumas and triggers hopes to reveal more of the issue than just dealing with food. And again, we're going to return to this term of of co-occurring diseases and comorbidity, which is the rule rather than the exception for those with eating disorders. So simultaneous suffering of multiple disorders is the rule rather than the exception with those with eating disorders. In dealing with trauma, in dealing with triggers, coping styles vary. You can have action-oriented coping styles to reflective coping styles to emotionally expressive coping styles and then to like reticent coping styles. So it also can be categorized as avoidant coping or active coping. So avoidant coping is kind of associated with self-punishing thoughts and, and beliefs and often can result in a negative medical outcome versus active coping is more problem-solving style, is more the reflective nature, the action-oriented nature, which are often associated with better medical results, and that's the coping style that we hope to achieve during recovery. And I'm going to give you guys some tips a little bit later on as to how to do that. My own emotional response, my own coping style, is kind of the freeze category of fight-flight. Um, we're going to talk about a little bit more what the amygdala does in your brain when it encounters a threat. But for me, I often have numbed certain memories as they elicit an unwanted and dysregulated emotional reaction and triggers in this sense pose identity threats for me because my triggers define me. So I kind of, instead of fighting, instead of flighting, I become... I freeze. I become paralyzed when my conception of myself is threatened. Which I don't blame myself for because it's a biological protective measure to kind of mitigate against the induction of anxiety or panic. But in recovery, I have to constantly remind myself that I don't have to be threatened anymore. This this fight or flight response exists in the amygdala, which is a structure in the brain, which is kind of designed to detect threats in the environment and automatically up activate that response in reaction to said threat. And I actually think this is a very interesting topic because the amygdala and the emotional uh, response associated is kind of an indication in our body and our mind's will to survive, right? It wants to be able to protect itself against external threats. Um, And this reaction, this fight or flight reaction kind of results in the release of certain chemicals including adrenaline, norepinephrine, glucose, to kind of prepare your body to react to the threat sufficiently and to protect yourself. The amygdala, interestingly enough, also stores new emotional or threat-related memories. And this storage results in like the reoccurrence of trauma through triggers. So if that memory is stored in a certain way, whether with sensory attribution or with a certain location or a certain 
external stimuli that is stored in addition to the memory of the trauma. And when you re-encounter these things, whether it's a, a sensory simulation, whether it's an external place or word or thought, all of, all of these things kind of result in the reoccurrence of trauma. And because of the overact- overactiveness of the amygdala, which is common in those who have dealt with eating disorder, your reactive system will become hyper-aroused. And so that's why these triggers become that much more profound in disordered eating. Trauma treatment is becoming more and more beneficial. And one of the things in researching for this episode is learning about how to break that trigger to disordered behavior response. And those in recovery you got to kind of learn the trigger specific to you to practice ways to manage the potential for relapse. So the, the first step in that breaking the trigger to disordered behavior response is identification and awareness. So identifying and becoming aware of your specific triggers. What prompts you to have negative emotional thoughts and feelings? And once you identify those there's, there's a power existent in just identifying your triggers because you're taking a hold. You're empowering yourself with your own recovery. And this is the first step in dealing with trauma. The second step is interruption. So once you have identified your triggers, you need to interrupt them. So you pause. Because triggers elicit disordered urges. So you pause when you have the trigger because you know that a disordered urge will, will follow. You suspend the desire to immediately give in and give yourself time. Give yourself time to engage in a positive behavior or response in place of the disordered urge. So you've, at this point, you've identified the trigger. You know what's going to cause an emotional reaction in you. You've interrupted the trigger to disordered behavior response. You've given yourself, even if it's just a moment, You've given yourself a moment to suspend the desire between triggers and disordered behavior. You've given yourself that time so that you can substitute the disordered behavior with an adaptive behavior. So these are behaviors that you want to engage in within the space between the disordered urge and the disordered behavior. And the goal of this adaptive behavior is to let your body feel something pleasant, to have a pleasant experience. So you can journal, you can listen to music, you can find, you know, some kind of inspirational social media account, you can read poetry, you can practice yoga, you can color, you can watch a favorite movie, you can pick up a new book, you can take a bubble bath or, you know, my favorite thing to do during this time is to engage in what I call the 10-finger gratitude count. So this is actually something I learned during mindfulness, and it's really, really helpful because I've given myself the time and the space necessary in order to engage in some kind of adaptive behavior before immediately engaging in a disordered urge. So I will give myself the time, and on my 10 fingers, it's pretty straightforward, on my 10 fingers, I will name... 10 things that I'm grateful for. So right now, if I were to do that, the 10 things that I would name 
I could say, number one, the weather yesterday. It was really beautiful. The sun was really nice. Um, number two, I could say the sweatshirt that I'm wearing. <laughs> it's very comfortable and it's like my favorite sweatshirt. Um, you can say a certain friend that has been kind to you or said something nice to you. You can say a certain you know, experience that you really enjoyed in the past day or so, you can say something that you're looking forward to as well. So you want to do 10 things that you're grateful for. And they really don't have to be that big. They can be, as I said, like the sweatshirt I'm wearing, they can be such simple things, but automatically redirect your thought and thought and actively engage your brain and your memory in order to come up with these 10 things. So after you do that, you want to repeat it every single time you face a trigger. So the fourth and final step is the repetition. So the more you pair a negative feeling with a healthier adaptive response, the stronger that link will become. Because right now going into recovery, the trigger to disordered urge, the disordered eating thought is so, so, so strong. And you in recovery have to actively work against that strength. And almost trick your mind into associating a more healthy, beneficial behavior into that negative feeling. And eventually that repetition will become regular practice. So that's kind of the end of our discussion on trauma and triggers as they relate to disordered eating. For now. (laughs) More will come in the future, I'm sure. But... At the end of each episode, I hope to share a piece of art or insight from someone who has suffered from mental illness as an attempt to kind of amplify the voices of those recovering. So for this week, we are going to feature this artist named Christy Bagnell, who depicts her experience with anorexia nervosa through drawing. And that's actually interesting because it's one of the things that we had mentioned as an adaptive behavior to kind of break that trigger to disordered behavior response. And Bagnell features hundreds of drawings on her Instagram. And her Instagram is at me and my ed dot art. So M-E-A-N-D-M-Y-E-D dot art. And she has compiled a lot of her drawings and her illustrations on her Instagram. And then she also has a book entitled Me and My ED, which serves as a resource for those suffering or recovering from eating disorders. So definitely consider viewing her artwork on Instagram if you want. I also want to specifically feature um, some of the things that she had talked about in, in regards to trauma and triggers because that is the subject of our episode. And on her Instagram, actually recently, she talked about the scientific process behind triggers and your emotional response. And she wrote that your sympathetic nervous system kicks in when you face a trigger it releases adrenaline into your bloodstream to get your body moving right your heart rate your breathing increases your blood flow redirects your muscles redirects to your muscles and brain and your pupils dilate to let in more light so you can see your body has a very complex reaction to dealing with threats and the result is either to fight, which is to face a threat, or flight, which is to flee the threat. 
And in many species, including our own, we talk about that third response, the freeze response. But it's important to note that this freeze response is actually driven by a dominance in the parasympathetic nervous system instead of the sympathetic nervous system, which elicits the fight or flight response. So your heart and lungs slow down. Your vocalization stop. The body freezes as a threat is perceived to be too overwhelming to fight or flee from. So no matter what response is activated at the time, our bodies on a level below our conscious control will react and try to move us towards safety. So again, your body has a will and an urge to survive, and it's going to do what's necessary to do so. And this is the discussion of reaction to an external threat, right? But then if we talk about the response to an internal threat, it kind of mirrors that of an external threat, the fight, flight, or freeze. It just kind of looks a little different. So instead of knocking out the threat with a couple of punches or fleeing the threat, we self-destruct. Instead of running away, we numb, we escape our emotions. Instead of freezing in response to the parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system, we can disassociate becoming completely disconnected from our body. And this is something we had talked about before with the dissociative amnesia, which can occur. And on the outside, this is where an eating disorder comes in. So self-destructing, numbing and escaping our emotions, and becoming disconnected from our body, those are all things that characterize an eating disorder, in addition to substance use, to self-harm, to addiction. And then it's a practice in learning to cope, in finding ways that ensure survival while destroying ourselves. And this is the complexity that exists in eating disorders because it is a practice that we think is getting us to safety, but in fact, it is putting us in danger. So quite a lot to talk about today. And I want to talk about more too, like the neurological and biological processes that underlie eating disorder behavior and thought. This is something we'll jump into in another episode. But next week, we're going to talk about the transformation of eating disorder culture. And I'm actually really excited for this episode because I think it'll be interesting to chart how eating disorders have perceived been perceived in the media throughout the years that they've been known. And as I said, I think it was two episodes ago, eating disorder behavior has been around for thousands of years. Obviously, it wasn't called an eating disorder for a long, long time, but there's definitely some compelling things in result of how our culture deals with eating disorders, presents them. Um, and I'm hoping to look into that. We're going to look into that a little bit for their next episode um, at Sunday morning on 9 a.m. So if you are interested in learning about that, definitely, definitely tune in. And then if you're interested in learning more about eating disorders, please visit the National Eating Disorders Association, NEDA website at nationaleatingdisorders.org. 
And if you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support in recovery and consider seeking treatment. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years, and I didn't think anything would ever be able to come in between that. And treatment did, and treatment still does. And then if you are in a crisis situation, please contact NEDA's helpline by texting NEDA to 741741. And finally, if you're interested in sharing your own story with mental illness or eating disorders, or if you would like to highlight a poem, song, piece of art, or insight, please don't hesitate to direct message at Heavier Than I Look on Instagram or Twitter. All are welcome to share their story. And then finally, let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for now, guys. I'll see you guys next week.